FromTheHeart.org Radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. This is Bernard Gersh from the Mayo Clinic, and with me is a colleague and a friend, Paul Friedman. Uh, the title of our discussion is Controversies Surrounding the ICD. Paul, welcome. And I just wanted to preface by stating that, look, we've got an, an enormous amount of data from trials that ICDs are effective in the secondary prevention of uh, more, uh, death and out-of-hospital arrest, and also for the primary prevention. So where, where do the controversies lie? Bernard, good morning. It's, it's a pleasure to chat with you. Um, as you said, there's a large body of evidence that's been quite consistent that for the high-risk patient, the ICD is the most effective way of preventing sudden death. But um, a number of areas have, have raised some discussion. The first has been, who should get an ICD? And uh, in the real world, are patients who don't meet guidelines receiving ICDs? So just quickly uh, summarize the guidelines. I mean, they, they are very pretty specific. We're just talking about primary prevention. Right. I think we accept that anybody who's survived now out of hospital arrest or um, uh, hemodynamically significant ventricular tachycardia, we would place an ICD. But what, what do the guidelines say about implantation for primary prevention? Sure. So people who have heart failure or who have had a previous myocardial infarction, who have, generally speaking, an ejection fraction less than 35%, uh, are at high risk for subsequent sudden cardiac death and are uh, eligible for ICD therapy if they meet the entry criteria of the trials or, or the guideline specifications. So it's 35% and uh, symptoms of heart failure and in people with LV dysfunction and no heart failure, is it 30% or less? So they, this is where we really get into the nuance of the studies and what gets a, a little more involved. But um, in the MADE IT2 study, patients had an ejection fraction of less than 30% and weren't required to have any heart failure. In the SCUD-HEF trial, patients had class 2 or class 3 heart failure and had an ejection fraction less than 35%. There have been several editions of the guidelines, and each with slightly different interpretations yeah. by the experts, which is where it gets quite nuanced in terms of the strength of the recommendation. But the real controversy has been... Um, Paul, can I just interrupt for a moment? And The other point that I've, I've often made, we talk about... Um, in people without heart failure, less than 30%, and people with heart failure, less than 35%. But we can't really even measure a 5% difference in ejection fraction, at least with an echo, we can't. And I, I don't even think we can with a, with a cardiac MRI. No, that's absolutely right. But I think in the real world, we look at the, the data that was obtained in the trials, we apply it to our patients as best as possible and use that information. Okay. Now, in a recent study um, published in JAMA, as many as 20 to 25% of patients who received devices appeared not to have what was te uh, deemed evidence-based indications. But the... the um, and were these evidence-based on the basis of ejection fraction, mainly? So the main issue was patients had had a recent myocardial infarction, or the duration of their heart failure may not have been long enough. Now, it's important to recognize that in that study, um, it was a high-level registry-based study. So that uh, a number of questions arise. For example, what about the patient who maybe had a pre-existing known low ejection fraction who now comes to med medical attention because of an event with a troponin bump? Um, is that someone who is not evidence-based? In fact, you could argue that if they've had long-standing depressed ventricular function, it may be appropriate. There are other so what you're really focusing on here is, are the guidelines recommendations 
that we need to wait for 40 days after a myocardial infarction. That's right. And, um, and I think that that is based on two very good trials, iris and dynamite, that showed in people with a recent MI there was no benefit from an ICD. Personally, if, if I had saw someone with long-standing LV dysfunction and a troponin bump, I would say that it would be reasonable to put in an ICD on the basis of long-standing LV dysfunction, even though that's not exactly how the guidelines would phrase it. Well, I agree with that. And the, the real issue in, with regards to the study is it's hard to know from this form of registry okay. how many patients fall in that category. Another issue that has been raised is that from this form of registry, it's very difficult to know how long patients have had heart failure for um, and whether they have had it for at least three months for patients, uh, particularly with dilated cardiomyopathy, where you want to see three months to be sure there's not an acutely reversible process right. before committing the patient. And to I think ICD. with MI, you want that 40-day period because during that 40-day period, people with LV dysfunction die of cardiac rupture, they die of failure, they die of ischemic events, and uh, you're not going to prolong their life with an ICD. Um, I think also you want to get by time for stunned myocardium to recover. That's right. And then the other issue where really we don't have guideline uh, um firm guidelines, guidance, I should say, is patients who need pacing shortly after an MI who have a low ejection fraction. Yeah. Because on the one hand, we're committing them to a procedure to implant the device. They, they have a depressed ventricular function. They may recover. We don't know. Uh, a reasonable clinician may, in an effort to avoid repeated procedures, offer an ICD. And then which, lastly, which is, seems reasonable. It, it does. It does. And then lastly, there's a whole issue of of the fact that guidelines are just that, they're guidelines, and that there are variations in individual clinical circumstances. Nonetheless, the, the study found that, patient, uh, that at centers where guidelines were more, more closely followed, morbidity was lower, and it is important that we um, in, uh, review and critically assess how we practice medicine. Well, I, th I think that's come up in other areas. For instance, in the acute coronary syndromes, uh, centers that follow guidelines. Guidelines, following guidelines may be a surrogate of care because um, I know it may be that the mortality and morbidity is lower because you follow the guidelines, but it also may be a surrogate for other mm -hmm. good practice. And as you say, we need to keep monitoring our own practice. What are some other controversial areas? What about replacement of the ICD? What do we... What do we know about that? Someone who has had an ICD, they've had no discharge, they come back three to five years later, they're older, they're sicker. I mean, do we revise our indications again? It's an excellent question, and it's one that really hasn't been answered yet. Um, once someone is given ICD therapy, it's very difficult to discontinue it. I agree. Uh, but whenever, whether a device is removed for infection or because of pulse generator battery depletion, I think it's important that we reassess the patient's clinical status and determine as best we can whether there is an ongoing need. But there's a, a paucity of data, and hopefully we'll have answers in the future uh, um, regarding how to address I, that. I think this is, I mean, this is a study that needs to be done. And as you say, we are looking at it here because... Uh, in, in, in many cases, I, I, I think that when I see someone that comes back after several years, particularly if they're older and sicker and they've had a deterioration in renal function, an, an increase in the severity of heart failure, these are people who, if I've seen them for the first time, I might not put in an ICD because I think they're too sick for an ICD. 
That's right. There, there has been um, scoring systems developed, as you well know, to assess the the likelihood of surviving past one year. Obviously, uh, individuals who are so ill that they likely won't live one year don't benefit from ICD therapy generally. Um, one such scoring system is the PACE scoring system yep. that was put together with uh, Hauser, uh, Dr. Bob Hauser and us and other and uh, Dr. Kramer. And essentially um, um, looking at very simple thing, age, um, um, peripheral vascular disease, age over 70, C is creatinine greater than two, and E is ejection fraction less than 20%. You get a point for each of these except for um, creatinine, and that gives you two points if it's over two. And if your score was three or more, there was a 15% one-year mortality and suggesting um, that maybe some such scoring system may be useful in determining who should get uh, yeah. devices and who should get pulse generator change-outs. I think philosophically I've changed over the years. It, initially, when I see a patient over the last five years, the first question that came to mind was, you know, what is the likelihood of sudden cardiac death? Does the patient need an ICD? And now, as we deal with this older, sicker population, the first question that comes to mind often is what is the likelihood of a non-arrhythmic death? Is this a patient who's going to die of heart failure and we're not going to do anything to help the patient by putting in an ICD? Yeah, um, no, I think medical judgment is always terribly important. And without a doubt, again, ICD remains the most effective therapy for preventing sudden death, but we really need to determine the patient's overall condition, competing um, morbidities and whatnot. Any other controversies? I think um, the issue that's probably making the most news these days is that of ICD lead malfunction. Um, there has been a lot of news. As you know, the Fidelis lead was recalled a few years back um, after roughly 260,000 had been implanted. In the United States, there are 79,000 patients with a Riata lead. The Riata lead has been found to have an inside-out erosion. The lead is made of silicon, has individual conductors inside, and that with repetitive cardiac motion, those conductors can erode outside of the main body of the lead. That seems to um, uh, create, well, it creates a radiographic uh, abnormality, although the leads often still work. But where's the controversy? The controversy is what to do with the patients. So we know we have a lead that um, is showing some signs of integrity disruption. And the question is, at what point do you do something about it? We know from previous advisories that often there's such anxiety about the potential for a life-saving device to not work that um, a large number of them underwent pulse generator changeouts, and you actually have a much higher risk of infection or complication from even relatively simple procedures. I think that that's an important point, and that is lead replacement and generator replacement is not as benign a procedure as we thought. Yeah. I, I think that's fair. Um, when you look at the big picture, the um, ICD, even when we have these problems, is still more effective than antiarrhythmic drugs and antiarrhythmic drug side effects. And um, when the lead fails, however, it's a dramatic, important event and one that, that you know, it gets everyone's attention. I think that for the, the current um, Riata lead failures, the overall number appears to be low. But there is concern both about the radiographic abnormality and now this possibility that a conductor inside can erode and make contact with a coil leading to shock failure. What are we doing right now with our patients who yeah. have Riata lead? So we've, we've contacted all the patients and we're following them with remote monitoring. And a, now the current medical panel has suggested every three to six months 
we feel there's really a positive information, and we're following patients with electrical surveillance on a monthly basis. We are getting annual um, fluoroscopy and x-rays. There's a lot of um, discussion about that because no one knows for sure what to do with the information. We feel we want to know if there's a problem with the lead integrity, and then we individualize it. We categorize patients as high risk and low risk. High risk patients are people who are pacemaker dependent. So if the lead malfunctions, there could be an immediate problem. And patients who have secondary prevention or who've had recent or repetitive shocks. Lower risk patients would be the primary prevention patient who's right. never had a discharge. So with the primary prevention patient, we're far more comfortable simply observing. With someone who's pacemaker dependent, we would have a more detailed discussion with that patient and have a lower threshold for placing a new lead. Um, and then there's the issue of whether you extract or abandon the old lead. Um, that varies a lot on center experience and whatnot. We, we generally will, um, in younger patients, discuss extraction to avoid hardware accumulation, whereas we found um, that abandoning leads is generally safe and in older patients will not um, do the extraction. Paul, just to wrap up, looking down the line a little bit, where do you think the subcutaneous lead-based ICD system uh, I'll will, um, will end up? I'll comment on that and just newer technologies in general. I think the subcutaneous ID, ICD system um, will have a nice, um, a nice use for primary prevention in people who don't require pacing, who don't need CRT indications, right. and we know those are growing. Right. But nonetheless, for the, for the person with a low EF, narrow QRS, the subcutaneous ICD, which may be 10 to 20% of people, um, may, may be a very nice option. And when you say narrow QRS, in terms of the ICD indication, it really... It, it was less than 150, or 120 to 150, but I think the feeling now is 150 and above. So for resynchronization therapy, yeah. especially for patients who are class 1 or class 2, we'd like to see a QRS of 150. Right. If it's 120 to 150, it would be useful to see other measures or markers of dyssynchrony. And while um, the use of echo has fallen out of favor, there's some newer speckle tracking modalities that are now showing promise that may guide where the lead should go, which may help us be more effective in delivering this therapy. What other new technologies can we look forward to in the next two to three years? I think towards the future, we'll start to see the availability of leadless pacemakers. These are devices that are very small, are implanted inside the heart. They may be about an inch long, also almost bullet-shaped, and they stay in the heart without any wires going through valves or, or packs anywhere else, and with an anticipated longevity of uh, seven to nine years. Wow could be um, maybe eliminate the potential for lead problems. Um, there may be um, epicardial leads, which have the potential benefit of being able to be placed any um, desired location for resynchronization. And certainly in, in the electrophysiology laboratory, we're seeing percutaneous epicardial access um, becoming increasingly common for ablation. I suspect it'll the same will happen in the device world. Well, thanks very much, Paul. Bernard, always a pleasure. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. Visit theheart.org to find out more.